A very warm welcome to this month's episode of Building Women, our podcast that shines a spotlight on senior women in construction who are bucking the trend and smashing down those barriers in an industry that is still unbelievably 85% male. Today, my guest is the very lovely Nicole Gagan, General Counsel and Company Secretary at Costain Group and General All-Round Superwoman. Nicole joined Costain in 2022 from HS2, where she was also GC and COSEC for six years. Whilst she has worked both in the UK and Australia for a number of industrial and engineering businesses on some supersized and transformative infrastructure projects, that hasn't always been the case for Nicole. Later, we will hear about her upbringing in New South Wales, Australia, and how that has contributed to her career success, and her unusual side hustle where she rescued, refurbished, and ran a successful pub business with her family, all whilst working full-time as head of legal for an Aussie oil and gas contractor. I really enjoyed my chat with Nicole, and I hope you will too. Nicole, welcome to Building Women. Julia, thank you so much for having me. I really um, am welcoming this opportunity to, uh, I guess, have a have a chat about my career journey so far, which is a, a little bit unique in certain respects. <laughs> it is. Um, thanks very much for joining us. Um, so, you were born and you grew up in New South Wales, Australia, as people might be able to pick up on the accent. Um, tell me about that and a little bit maybe about your parents. Yeah, of course. So uh, my Aussie accent has definitely not left me, I'm afraid. So I am from Hunter Valley in New South Wales in Australia. And uh, my parents were both small business people. Uh, I come from a long line of small business people with a strong sort of hospitality quotient in there. So my mum, you know, from when I was younger to, to when I sort of left home, she'd run uh, hairdressers. She had run a, a liquor store. She had uh, managed a pub. Uh, she ran. Uh, at one point, she bought a sort of small grocery store, small local independent grocery store, and ran that for a while. My dad ran a car dealership for more than twenty years, and then he uh, ran a pub. Um, they were divorced, uh, but nevertheless, you know, similar similar business background, and same for my grandparents on the maternal side. So that. That really strong small business mindset, focusing mm-hmm. on um, revenue, costs, uh, how to utilize your team members to best effect, how to develop those team members and, and keep them keep them interested and with you. That's mm-hmm. something that's sort of ingrained in me, I'm afraid. And because of that big hospitality um, aspect, you know, customer service and, and being able to deal with a really broad variety of people. That's yeah. something that sits really, um, really prominently in my background. But no one in my family had a degree. Um, they, okay. uh, no lawyers, <laughs> no, lawyers <laughs> no degrees. Uh, my hubby is not a lawyer. I meet a lot of lawyers whose uh, whose partners are lawyers, uh, but my hubby is not a lawyer. So, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> there you go. So, uh, it's it's very common because, of course, when you go to uni and you meet other people, you usually meet them, you know, doing your degree, of course, and then you yeah. start to work life. So, uh, yeah, it's- mine, mine did do law and politics, but um, decided it wasn't for him quite early on. So. <laughs> well, it gives you a bit of variety in your household, doesn't it? Exactly. Which is no bad thing. Um, 
So as, as I've kind of touched upon in my intro, um, you had quite an unusual uh, career journey. Um, it kind of, I know from our first chat, it started off quite traditionally and then you made that unusual move, but you have kind of already hinted on your family background in pubs and small businesses, so perhaps it might make more sense in the context now. <laughs> yes, so um, so yes, I did start. So my first um, couple of years were at a, a sort of equivalent of a magic circle firm in Sydney. And mm. after a couple of years, Sydney property is so expensive, Julia. My husband and I, he wasn't my husband then, he, he, was, mm. he was a boyfriend, but we'd moved to Sydney for sort of my first job out of uni. And uh, we were looking for, you know, somewhere to live and it was just debilitatingly expensive. So yeah. we decided that it was a great solution to our, our conundrum to uh, move overseas to London and, you know, get a fabulous job and kind of make our fortune. So <laughs> that was our sort of grand plan. So we bought this apartment that was uh, only half built at the time that we sort of committed to it and mm. we moved to London. And our plan was to uh, to pay off this, you know, apartment once it was built using uh, using London jobs. It's and, so uh, funny, isn't it now? Because people do that the other way around. So you yes. get people leave in the UK to go to Oz, like my sister, to make their fortune over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So mm. This is sort of more than 20 years or so ago now. And we'd only okay. planned to stay for two years. But I got this fabulous job for a PPP company. That's public-private partnership. I've, I've got to make sure I don't talk acronyms. Um, yeah. Called TubeLines, um, and TubeLines uh, was a tremendous company that uh, was a special-purpose vehicle. Was formed to uh, fulfil a contract for London Underground, maintaining and upgrading um, certain uh, tube lines on the tube network in London. It was an extraordinary role. And uh, I was very lucky to, to, to start work there. Still to this day, it's one of the best companies I've ever worked for. But I was there for quite some time and um, six years in the end. And they, uh, I'll sort of come back to that a little bit later. But our nieces and nephews were starting to arrive on my, on my husband's side in Oz. And, and in the end, we'd sort of away for six years. So we decided to um, head back to Australia. And I took up a role as a as head of legal in a, a professional services company called GHD, uh, mm. not the hair company, Julia, the, uh, the <laughs> professional, uh, yes, multidisciplinary <laughs> services sort of uh, engineering company, a bit, a bit like Arif and AECOM, I guess. Okay. No, I was there for four years and then I um, actually moved out of Sydney to um, the, back to the Hunter Valley permanently to work for a coal freight company. And look, while I was there, it was it was uh, very interesting. But after two years there, um, my mm. husband bought a pub, and I ended up doing quite a lot of hours in that pub while mm. I uh, worked part time in an oil and gas uh, head of legal role. So there was a time there. Um, I think it was probably two years in the end where I just worked all the time. <laughs> all the time Julia this is what I mean about superwoman I just don't know how you did it so you know head of legal these sort of roles that sort of level of a role alongside running and refurbishing and promoting a, a new pub business I just don't know how you did it well, well it wasn't the original plan so I mean you, you heard earlier both my family and as it happened my husband's family had had a long background in pubs so it wasn't as sort okay. of strange as it sounds but the original plan was that my husband, his dad, and his brother were by, you know, bought that business. 
And my husband was going to leave his financial planning job and go into the pub with his dad and brother, but completely unexpectedly. And it's the only time this has ever happened to me. And it was such a confronting, horrible experience. But I got made redundant from my, mm. my coal freight role. Um, the company um, was seeing uh, serious issues with the coal market and they decided to merge um, with one of their other subsidiaries. And it was a sort of uh, last in, first out basis. You know, it wasn't personal to me, although it felt very personal at the time. So rather than my husband leave his job, he just, he stayed in his job. And I went and did his role in the pub for a good six months um, while I didn't do any legal work. Um, and the pub, oh, goodness me, I, I don't know where to start, Julia. I mean, it was a loss-making business. And... The building was so unloved and in poor condition. And actually, having someone like me, I, I hesitate to say a woman's touch because I think that's quite sexist. <laughs> I will use that phrase in, and people will understand what I mean by it. Yeah. But it desperately needed that sort of sensitive love and care from, from its owners. And so I did all kinds of things in the first six months I was there. And then after six months, I got a call from a a previous colleague who offered me the, the part-time job in the, uh, the oil and gas contractor. But yes, look, I washed dishes, I made beds, painted, uh, you know, I did everything. <laughs> not afraid, not afraid to work hard, clearly. <laughs> Definitely not. Absolutely. Definitely not. So you're back in Oz, obviously, but you're not there now. So how did you end up back in the UK? Yes, yeah, so um, so we uh, were working the pub for two years while I was working for the oil and gas contractor. And when I got made redundant, I had put my name on one of those sort of search services. I think it's called Indeed. I mean, it was just many years ago now. Okay. And um, into our sort of second year in the pub, I got this sort of pop-up from Indeed, uh, which was advertising the HS2 general counsel and company secretary role. And when an opportunity like HS2 presents mm. itself, you know, someone like me just can't can't resist the challenge, Julia. <laughs> so I, I applied and it took some months, but um, mm. I got over the line in the end and I started there in February 2016. And look, wow. it's it, it, the fact that you can walk around, or not walk around, but travel around now and you can see the assets mm. being built. And that journey since February 16 is quite extraordinary. When I arrived there, it was very much in setup mode. I mean, I used to work sort of five days a week in the office and I always worked a day on the weekend. And of course, for me, that was that was a day off because I was sort of used to working seven days a week. And so that, that felt yeah. great that, that I got a whole day <laughs> off. Um, but anyway, but it was it was so many things that were in startup mode, you know, trying to get processes and procedures settled down people setting into settling into jobs and races so that you know the all the departments were aligned and all our functions were working it was a really big job but the the um I think the common theme throughout the whole is with that small business background you always think about it I definitely do anyway mm -hmm. about my own money you know, when I'm doing a job, it's I always think about the spend with the company I'm working for as my own money. And so that um, that thread was very much a strong thread for me at HS2. And and of course, the team um, who I had the joy of working with. 
So what was your what was your approach to that role and and I guess your role now, your role since? What 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 kind of sets you apart perhaps from other people? Because you were quite young when you got some of these pretty impressive head of legal and GC roles. Yeah, so when I was um working for the public private partnership company called Tube Lines, that was my first head of legal role. And I think I was 27 or 28 it was it was it was quite young I was really inexperienced Julia but Mm. but I tell you what I lacked in experience I made Mm. up in graft (laughs) I worked my butt off and maybe (laughs) maybe because I wasn't so experienced and I had the background that I did that it was actually okay for me to go out to my colleagues and say what do you need from this legal function what do you, you know what are you looking for what does good look like and to be quite open about that conversation in the company you know we all we all come from a very technical background when you're in the legal field you know you do your training you do yeah. everything, and and I can't end, uh, underestimate the importance of being able to make sort of technical judgments once you're sort of in post in these senior roles it's super important but when mm. it gets down to it a legal function in-house especially, you know, in the construction where, where we are, is providing a service back to the business to help the business yeah. meet its goals. And I guess the other thing that it's doing, and I've always had a sort of strong integrity thread through my roles, is it's providing a role as a conscience of the business as well. You know, you need you need a function in the business and legal can can usually, if it's, if it's set up well, do a good job of this, but you need some function in the business that is that conscience of the business um, I mean, dare I say it, but we're seeing that now sort of play out with the post office, aren't we? I won't obviously go into that here, yeah. but that conscience role is so important. So uh, between those two things, I think uh, that's definitely helped me um, progress through my career, having that real customer service focus. That's it with your background. And it's, I suppose, with 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 us lawyers, the technical side of things when you're providing a service to your clients is a bit of a given they expect you they you know they know where you are they know what level your role is at so you're kind of expected to just be able to do that but it's that added value of you know your customer service skills and your client first approach and 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 kind of dealing with it as if it's your own money that I assume is not commonplace and that's kind of what sets you apart from um, from others in in yeah in similar roles well, uh, look I, I assume so <laughs> I assume so I guess so I mean I will say we've all been there haven't we where we've read we've read a piece of advice that a that a legal professional has created and I'll say well it could be this or it could be that and the clause says this and the clause says that which is all very very useful but it doesn't tell a business what it should do and so mm. I the, the value add for me is always saying, well, you know, here's the legal position, but mm. here's your pros and cons. Here's all the options available to you. And if I was in your shoes, this is where I'd be thinking, you know, that that has always been the value add. And indeed, when I'm looking for team members for my legal teams in the roles that I've been in today, I'm yeah. looking very much from for, for team members who are practical, pragmatic and really can do people. You know, they don't just stop at the legal advice. They look to add that that bit of extra yeah. value in helping the business work through the challenges in front of it. Yeah. So I'm guessing that came into play at HS2. I, 
obviously it's garnered quite a lot of negative press recently with with the extension being scrapped by the government but I know you absolutely adored that role um, and the opportunity to work on such an impressive and you know from what you've told me pretty groundbreaking infrastructure project in terms of the approach so what kind of what made it so unique or what what makes it so unique Look, that HS2 role, I'm so glad I took it. I mean, we had to sell the pub, we had to sell our house. You know, we we, we relocated from Australia and mm. under my under our own steam at my cost, I should just add in case there's any confusion about that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, did yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Did not pay for my relocation. But the <laughs> so when I first arrived, I was general counsel and company secretary, but after a year I was put on the executive. And I um after another year, I also um took on the insurance function and the counter fraud function. And when it gets down to it, you know, the difference with HS2 is just the size and the scale. You know, there are a lot of people who are working on HS2, not just in HS2 Limited, but in the supply chain for HS2, which I think is up around 30,000 people now. It's enormous, who will never have worked on a £1 billion a year um, project. You know, and HS2 is up near the three to four billion pounds a year. And the opportunities that that presents uh, uh, just require a completely different lens. So, for example, if you took a lower value project, let's say something in the sort of 250 million range, which let's face it, Julia, is a lot of money. That's a big project, 250 million. But there'll be certain constraints on what you can do on that project just due to just due to cost. Um, You know, if you wanted, for example, to deploy particular technologies, it may be that a 250 million project just doesn't have the size and scale to warrant the deployment of those technologies. So what HS2 has done because of its size and scale is it enabled completely different approaches to certain traditional ways of working that I think are now becoming BAU in smaller projects because they're sort of cascading down. And that sort of sea change around methods, digital tools, you know, development of apprentices and grads, um, that to me is what, you know, to go back to your original question, what makes HS2 unique? To me, that's what makes HS2 unique. And of course, the sort of sad thing is that I don't think a lot of that reaches the press in the first place about that sea change that HS2 is really creating the environment for. Um, Not an easy thing to quantify as well, um, but nevertheless, it's very much there. Like since I joined Costane, I can see initiatives that have come out of HS2 have come through the Costane joint venture that Costain is involved with who are working on HS2 and are now filtering into Costain, you know, as a as a, yeah, as a yeah. BAU, um, initiative. So there's plenty of those examples, but I do think without HS2, maybe those sea changes would have been a lot slower coming coming to fruition. Yeah, so it sounds like it was quite ahead of its time. Um, and kind of from what you've told me before that thought really long and hard about the environmental impact and the kind of social impact positive social impact that the project could have just wondering whether you have any um examples of that well look absolutely so the skills aspects of hs2 so for example when i joined back in 2016 we were at the stage of the project where we were starting to put together what were called the main works civils contracts for phase one. That's the link mm. between London and Birmingham. 
And those contracts had in them a requirement for the appointed contractors to deploy a certain number of apprentices. So, you know, the value, the, the specs themselves weren't just um, focused, you know, on the work. You know, that, let's face it, is a pretty traditional um, construction industry um, mm. to just focus on the work. They went far beyond that and focused on developing skills for the UK. So, uh, Which I guess you can do with a 20-year project, right? Exactly. And, and particularly in an industry where there's such a shortage of those skills as well. That's right. So the, the um, project recognised very early, even before I joined, that if they didn't create an environment for skills development, there would not be enough personnel in industry in the UK to actually do the project. Yeah. There were two high-speed rail colleges that were um, commenced. This was some years ago now. They've now um, uh, morphed and matured into infrastructure colleges and, you know, numerous um, individuals have gone through the training that those colleges offer and, and gain skills because of it. So there's a sort of wonderful example of how HS2 has supported you know, growth of skills in the market, which will um, and is paying back to UK indirectly through numerous other non-HS2 projects that the people who now have gained that experience have, have gone to work on. Um, and look, on the environmental side, look, I know there are a lot of environmental debates about HS2. It's no secret that a very small percentage of the UK's ancient woodlands has had to be um, compromised to enable HS2 to be built. There's the, you know, there's, there's no point mincing words around that. Mm. I guess this, and, and the truth is, you can't replace those ancient woodlands. I guess the saving grace is that HS2 is a low carbon form of transport. That's one yeah. of its, its primary um, benefits. The effort and cost to taxpayers that's been taken to try and protect the environment as much as possible. So I, I can give you an example. Um, there was a particular ancient woodland um, not far from Birmingham, you know, at the northern end of phase one. And mm. uh, it was prescribed through the legislative process many years ago that the um, that section of the route would have a tunnel um, put in rather than the ancient woodland being destroyed by the HS2 railway. Now, the yeah. cost to taxpayer of what is basically a two-mile tunnel is a huge cost, but but it has saved that ancient woodland. Yeah. So there are a lot of um, a lot of constraints and a, a lot of important constraints put on HS2 during the legislative process to ensure that when the um, assets were built, they would be as protective of our environmental assets in the UK as, as much as they could be. Um, I have seen, Julia, bug hotels. I have seen bat tunnels. <laughs> I've seen a, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and again, it's unfortunate that a lot of the public don't get to sort of have visibility of what yeah. are actually taken because they are extensive. Um, covered tunnels so that instead of just having a cutting, you have grass over the top so that, you know, the, your environmental impact is less. I know yeah. it's not restoring some of those wonderful trees that have had to be removed, but uh, hopefully it's making it tolerable. Mm. Changing the topic of conversation slightly away from HS2, so bringing, it, bringing us up to present day, um, what excites you about your role at Costain, where you are now? 
Oh, yes. Well, look, when I left HS2, Julie, I was so tired. It's I'm not really, surprised with all of those roles that you named. It's very <laughs> unusual for someone to spend six years on a project. People tend yeah. to spend shorter stints of time. I was really tired. I mm. left without another job, uh, which I know is, is quite a risk, I guess. But um, I was very lucky. Uh, I got approached by Costain a couple of months after um, I'd left HS2. And look, when you look back, I guess, I've never planned my career, but it just so happens that when you look at the roles I've had, they've gone all the way from the sort of professional services aspect, you know, at the start of a project, through yep. construction, even into sort of um, maintenance, refurbishment, operations. You know, when yep. I was at Tube Lines, the public-private partnership, that was, a, that was an operations company. So my experience set had sort of spawned the whole life cycle, I guess, of, a, of an infrastructure asset. And, yeah. uh, and Costain presented a really good match for that. They weren't purely civils. They operate in a number of sectors. And um, unlike a number of the sort of tier one constructors in the UK, they do a lot of construction. It's still the core part of their business but they also offer um, skills and expertise in the front end of a, of a infrastructure project and in the operations and, um, and maintenance side and indeed, you know, the decommissioning, that whole life cycle. Yeah, so the yeah, fact yeah. that it was a good fit for my, you know, all of those skills in the round, um, that was what was really exciting to me. And, and that, um, and they didn't want me just to be a lawyer. You know, the role that I took was a, um, a general counsel and company secretary role, but it was a role on the Costain executive team. And mm -hmm. um, I attend all the uh, PLC board meetings for Costain. So it gives me an opportunity to contribute, not just in the legal sphere. That was a very important feature for me as well. Yeah, fab. What on earth is your secret? Because I know when we first met, you said you don't, you don't get stressed. Is that right? Yes. That blows my mind. <laughs> With everything rarely. you said that, that you've done, that just, yeah, mad. I very rarely get stressed because yeah. I just think, I don't, it's just my DNA. I've never been a person who gets particularly stressed. Um, I'm, very, I'm very fortunate in that I try and do my best. And I think mm -hmm. if I have done my best and I'm satisfied that I've done my best, I can't I can't offer any more so I figure there's no point getting stressed about something that I can't give if I'm confident I'm giving my all then uh, then that's that's a that's it that's such a healthy <laughs> attitude <laughs> and actually that's that is right isn't it a lot of the stress comes from perhaps having expectations that are a little beyond what you're able to achieve and, and as you say you know my mum's always said that to me as long as you've done your best that's um, right exactly yeah. and you know like I like my work I you know it is work of course it is it's not like sort of sitting at home and reading a book but um but I like it I like doing it I like the satisfaction that I get out of it and if I look back at sort of the 20 to 25 years you know I've been in and around the construction industry I mean mm -hmm. if I look back to when I was at Tube Line so that was from 2001 to 2007 mm -hmm. I was senior leadership team then and uh, I remember we'd uh, we'd have, you know, senior leadership um, get together sort of twice a year and uh, everyone was sort of bolt for the loo at the tea break. And there was four women 
in a group of about 80 to 90 senior leaders. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we used to laugh that uh, we didn't have to line up to go to the toilet. <laughs> that doesn't even feel that long ago. Well, it isn't. And if I mm. did that same straw poll now mm. in any sort of large-ish construction companies, you just simply wouldn't see anything like that ratio. So the truth is there has been enormous progress, you know, in that last 20 to 25 years. I guess more so in what I'll call head office roles, there is still, I think, a real um, challenge in the sort of more blue collar on-site roles. But even that journey I can see coming along because increasingly, especially in the sort of infrastructure world that Costain's in, increasingly those roles are the intellect roles or technology roles mm. or, you know, so I can see that sort of not, not, not so much that sort of real physical labour because, of course, over time, labour is getting getting replaced by equipment. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got TBMs now, tunnel boring machines that dig out big tunnels, not not people, as there's a simple example. So mm. that journey, I can see that attractiveness. And, and for me, I mean, I've just found being in infrastructure enormously rewarding. You know, you get a very visual reminder every time you go past a bridge or a road that you worked on um, that you know yeah. you had a, a, a wee little part in that which is which is wonderful and you know if it is fulfilling and you do feel valued where you are then you know brilliant if you enjoy it exactly and I, I'm very fortunate my husband doesn't work and he takes a whole load of what I'll call life laundry off my plate which uh, nice. lets me focus my energies on on my work and something I I enjoy very much so if there's if there's any top tips for your listeners out there I would mm. tell, uh, in terms of their sort of reaching their their best career heights I'd tell them a supportive partner uh, is one of the the best things that you can have to enable you to uh, to reach your career goals I agree it's so important you've got that support at home when you're putting in the long hours and you know not so much you but if you're stressed <laughs> um, you need that support at home to kind of yeah pick you up and keep you going and and just make it easier for you to do the job that you love doing and you want to do. Yes I've got this theory Julia that we've all got mm. a certain amount of energy and of course we all choose where we want to put it and I like putting it into my job and it's something that, as I say, gives me that satisfaction. And the fact that my husband um, takes a lot of the other tasks away means I don't have to put energy into those other tasks, which is super helpful for me. Finally, um, a bit of a fun question I ask every guest at the end of the podcast. So what book would you recommend to our listeners as a must read and why? Oh, goodness. Um, so I read a lot, all fiction, because I mm -hmm. find, you know, that whole escape thing going on. I quite, I quite Same, nice. But I absolutely love The Fountainhead by Anne Rand. Um, okay. If you've never read it, it's it, she almost espouses this sort of um, philosophy of, it's a, it's a fiction book, but she espouses this philosophy of the person as sort of a unit of labour. And that, you know, you you only sort of get satisfaction from your life if you sort of contribute to the mm. extent of full full potential. Um, and I love that. And so I won't I won't ruin the ending for you. No spoilers alert on the, in this discussion, but it is well worth a read. And look, I couldn't possibly constrain my uh, my recommendations, Julia, to one book. 
anything by Hilary Mantle, like the Wolf Hall series, I could read those over and over. Colleen McCulloch, an Australian author that wrote The Thornbirds, she she was wonderful as well. So, Julia, what a lovely conversation. Thank you. I know, I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much for coming um, and taking part in this um, so freely. So, thank you very much.